So let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13. Um, was anybody here last week, not here last week, and needs those handouts? Uh, uh, they're on that back table, I guess, Chris or Eli. If anybody needs them, just raise a hand. Eli will get you one. The outline from 1 Samuel. Um, what's up, gents? 1 Samuel chapter 13 is where we are, and we're continuing our study of 1 Samuel. Uh, we're going to jump into chapter 13. We did the first 12 chapters. Again, we're not hitting everything, but we're hitting some of them. And I kind of like broke this down a little bit. We're going to first start with chapters 13 to 15. Really look at Saul, the Laodicean leader. Remember, Saul is the people's choice. And Laodicea is about the rights of the people. So let's do a little examination here as to the kind of leader that Saul was, who the people chose, and why God may have given them a leader like this. So uh, it's interesting that Saul's leadership really starts materializing in chapter 13, the number of rebellion. And we see what kind of a king you get in chapter 13 when you ask for a king that isn't the Lord. So historically, right, we read the Bible three ways, right? Historically, Saul is the first king. Doctrinally, Saul is a type of antichrist, a great type of antichrist. He is the people's choice of Laodicea, right? The rights of the people. But inspirationally, and we'll try to bring it down to something we could take away from, inspirationally, Saul really represents the fleshy Laodicean pastor, the Laodicean leader who leads his people astray. So we could look at it doctrinally, we could look at it historically, but for us practically, I like to look at him as that bad pastor, that bad leader, that bad elder that takes the people of God and leads them in the wrong direction. Now, if you remember back from Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, how God made man is a little bit of a preview of the kings of Israel. Right In Genesis 2-7, the Bible says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. The flesh came first. Saul is a type of the flesh. The first king was a fleshy king. He was of the earth. That is Saul. And you know what God did next? The Bible says, He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So the flesh was followed by the spirit when God was making man. So Saul, the flesh, is followed by David the spiritual man. He's the second king. And if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 13, if you look at verse number 1 and 2, the Bible says, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose him 3,000 men of Israel, whereof 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in Mount Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin, and the rest of the people he sent every man to his tent. I want you to notice in this chapter, it's not taken too long for the flesh to mess things up. He's only been in power for a short time, and you're going to see in chapter 13, it starts going south. It starts falling apart, and trust me, the flesh may look okay for a little while, but give it just a little bit of time, and it will corrupt, and it will pollute, and it will show you its true colors. So let's look at some of these. Verse number 3, let's look at Saul. And Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines. Hooray for... Jonathan, right? Okay, remember that. That was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard say that Saul had smitten a garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel also was had an abomination with the Philistines, and the people were called together after Saul to Gilgal. Please notice, who smote the Philistines? Jonathan. But who was Saul let him take the credit for the victory? Himself, right? Saul, this lousy leader, is taking credit for someone else's victory. And that's a good sign of a bad elder. That's a good sign of a bad pastor. That's a good sign of a bad deacon. That's a good sign of a bad somebody who's over you in the Lord, whether it's your dad or your pastor. Fleshly leaders are proud and they're insecure. And they don't want anybody else doing anything but themselves getting the credit. What is wrong with rejoicing with somebody else doing something for God and getting a blessing? 
Brother Josh called me up today with a little thing the Lord showed him. I was like, that is good, man. I know God gets the glory, but I'm excited that God's showing other people stuff in the Bible. I said, I'm going to put that in my notes. That's good. That's a blessing. It's a blessing when the guy you're discipling leads somebody to Christ that you couldn't lead to Christ. Hey, get excited about stuff like that. Saul couldn't rejoice in somebody under him like his son Jonathan getting any credit. He's got to take all the credit. He's got to get all the fanfare. That's a lousy leader. That's a lay of the sea and leader. That's a proud, insecure jerk. Saul was tall, right? He was head and shoulders above the rest. But you know what Saul was? He was a coward. He was a coward. Question, why was Jonathan fighting this battle? (laughs) Why weren't you fighting this battle, king? Why weren't you out there? Look at verse number seven. Look at this. Look at seven. And some of the Hebrews went over Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead, As for Saul, he was yet in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. You know what happens when you're dealing with a lousy leader? If the leader has no courage, all the people are going to end up following him trembling. Dads, you got to set a pace. Pastor got to set a pace. Uh, deacon got to set a pace. Older brother or sister in Christ, you got to set a pace because the people under you, you're like their ceiling. <laughs> if you're like here, they're never going to go past here. But if you set the bar here, you know, you give them something to strive for. You got to set a good example. Saul didn't set a good example. Where does courage come from? Courage comes from trusting God yourself. You can't give people courage if you have no courage. You can't give somebody something you don't have. Hey, dad. Hey, pastor. Hey, elder. Hey, older somebody. Can the people that God has put under you see any of God's courage in you? Do they see you trust in the Lord? Do they see you laying hold on the promises when things don't look like they're going right? Or is it always, oh, no, the sky is falling. What's going to happen? If that's the pace, guess what? The people under you are going to tremble. But then they see you maintain some faith. You know what? They're going to say, huh, I guess it's going to be okay. God's, he, God seems to get him. I guess God's got me too. Amen? Amen. Look at chapter, verse number eight. Let me show you something else about this lousy leader. Verse eight. So they're in this battle and it says, he, meaning Saul, tarried seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. Samuel said, wait, wait, wait for me to show up. But Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. And Saul said, bring hither a burnt offering to me, and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Came to pass that as, watch this, as soon, (laughs) isn't it funny how God puts this in the, as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him, that he might salute him. And Samuel said, What hast thou done? (laughs) And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that thou camest not within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash. You see what happened? Saul's out of order. What office does Saul have? He's a king. You know what office he's assuming there? He's acting like a priest. He wasn't supposed to bring any offerings. He wasn't supposed to do the duty of a priest, but he gets so impatient that he takes matters into his own hands. See verse number 10? He says, as soon as he had made an end of offering, he, he, he couldn't wait. The flesh is in patience. The blessing was right around the corner. But he just couldn't wait on God. He just couldn't do it God's way. He had to take matters into his own hands. Verse number 12, look at this part. Therefore, said I, the Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. Watch these next uh, four words. I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. Oh, gee, thanks, Saul. I'm sure God was really thrilled with your begrudging offering. You know, thanks. Oh, you had to go to church. That's fantastic. Oh, you just had to go give out that track. That's wonderful. Oh, you had to make it to prayer meeting. Gee, thanks. You know, God doesn't need any of our favors. We're not doing God any favors. God doesn't need you to go to church. Doesn't God doesn't need you to pray. God doesn't need you to show up and hear the missionary. God's like, hey, you could be blessed and I'd like to get to know you a little better and show you my power, but I'm not really making anything out on this deal. You're really making everything in this deal. So we're not doing God any favors when we show up for stuff. And that's a fleshy attitude. 
I forced myself, therefore. That's being done out of duty, not love. And the Bible says if it's not done with the right heart attitude, it burns up at the judgment seat of Christ anyway. That's really a lousy indication of his heart there. Now look at verse 13. Look at 1 Samuel 13, 13. And Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. Here we see in 1 Samuel 13, 13, like God wrote the Bible, we see uh, Saul is rejected. He's going to lose the crown. Samuel prophesies, you're going to lose the kingdom. You're going to lose the crown. You're going to lose the right terrain because you thought nothing of my commandment. Amen? Go to Proverbs 13. Let me show you another 13, 13. Hold your place in 1 Samuel. Go to Proverbs 13, 13. Another good 13, 13. And remember, if you've forgotten, that the verse numberings were not in the Greek and Hebrew. So, somebody knew what those numbers had to end up being so we can get some truth out of it. The Holy Spirit was involved in some of this stuff, in all this stuff. Proverbs 13, 13, look what the Bible says here. Whoso despiseth the word shall be destroyed, but he that feareth the commandment shall be rewarded. Man, if that doesn't go well with 1 Samuel 13, 13, because Saul despised the word and he lost the kingdom. And brethren, I don't know. Everybody wants to hypothesize what's going to be the metric at the judgment seat of Christ by which God is able to give you a crown and give you a reward. I think it's simply this. Your attitude toward that book is going to be the benchmark by which God's going to either give you the kingdom or you're going to lose something in the kingdom. I'm telling you, everything comes back to that heart attitude towards God's Word. Saul thought nothing of the Word of God. He says, you lost the crown. I don't want to follow Saul. Go back to 1 Samuel 13, man. Let me show you something else about this lousy leader. What a horrible, horrible example. What a terrible figure in the Bible. What a jerk. 1 Samuel 13, 19. Here's another thing that's bad about him. Again, practically, he's the Laodicean leader. And, and I guess I'm going to go on a soapbox now because I, I feel bad sometimes. It's going to sound weird. I've always had the best pastors I've ever known, right? I, you bump into Christians at fairs on the street, like, you know, you rub shoulders. You feel bad. Sometimes what I do is I go and I, I look at, like, other services online, and I want to see what other people that love God or want to get close to God, like, what do they do? And I was watching one the other night, and I'm like, these poor people. Like, they're getting Cracker Jacks and, like, you know, peanuts and, like, garbage fed to them. They're getting some little emotional buzz for, like, five minutes where it's more about their hips than their heart. And I'm just like, this is why Jesus, I turned to my wife, I said, this is why Jesus wants to spew Laodicea out of his mouth because it's just, like, got to make God sick. It's so far removed from the Word of God, the teaching of the Word of God. You want to study the, study the church of Antioch. You know what Antioch had in the Bible? They were a teaching church, a preaching church, a sending church, a praying church. Like These are the things of the faith. These are the things of the old-time religion. But the old-time religion has become so lost today that we look like such weirdos. Now, I'm not holding myself up as a good example at all, but I'm just looking at other people. I'm saying, these poor people, these poor Christians, they got Saul in their pulpits. They got Saul leading them. And so that's why they're so anemic and frail and they got rickets and they just their coats haven't been cut right. And they look so, the sheep are just such like astray. It's very sad, very sad. First Samuel 13, 19. Now watch this. Now there was no smith found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make them swords or spears. But all the Israelites went, now watch this, all the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen every man his share and his coulter and his axe and his mattock. Do you notice that Saul is getting his weapons and sharpening his sword from the Philistines? What are the children of Israel doing getting their weapons from the enemy? I'll tell you why. 
because the Laodicean leader is getting his Bible from the enemy. That's what that's a beautiful picture of. And if you're watching at home, hi. Right, but that's what that's a beautiful picture of it. Look at verse 22. Look at 22. 22. So it came to pass in the day of battle, watch this, that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul and Jonathan. When it came to battle time under Saul's leadership, the children of Israel no longer had a sword. And dear brethren, the responsibility of anybody that gets behind this music stand pulpit is to give the people of God the sword of the Spirit. To give the people the infallible, inerrant, preserved words of the living God. Don't you dare correct it. Don't you tell me what a better rendering is. Don't pull out your pocket Greek New Testament and tell me what words you heard somebody say that it should be. You're nonsense. You're Saul. You keep going to the enemy for the weapon when it comes to be battle time. They're going to have nothing. we got to equip people with the word of God because that's what you need in this fight. You need the word of God. You need to know it, rightly divided, understand how to put it together. That's what church is supposed to be about. Getting the word, sharpening your sword. But under Saul, they're going to the enemy for the sword. They're going to the world. They're going to publishers. They're going to people that are trying to make a buck. They're handling the word of God deceitfully. They're handling it for filthy lucre's sake. You know what? Somebody, the enemy, stole the Bible. I told, I said it, I think, last week. If he can't get you out of a gospel-preaching church, he'll let you sit in God's church with the devil's Bible. He'll be more than happy to do that. And you say, Pat, you make a big deal out of that. I will die on that hill that the King James Bible is the inerrant, inspired, preserved words of the living God. I will die on that hill, and I will die on the hill that we are never going to play contemporary music that rocks and rolls. Those are two hills I'm not I'm going to die on, right? Our church services are going to be honoring to Christ, and whoever else gets a blessing out of it, but he's the one we're trying to please. And this is his word. This is his love letter. We will die on that hill. The enemy tries to take our Bible, or somebody comes in and tries to take that Bible. I could be nice sometimes, but I will scratch that person's eyeballs out if they try to come in here and sow discord and take this Bible away from somebody. That just like strips my gears. Connor, how you doing? All right, uh, let's go to, uh, that was not in the notes. All right, let's go to chapter 14. 14. We got to, you know what? The Bible says earnestly contend for the faith. (laughs) Doesn't mean lackadaisically or haphazardly. It means with some passion, some zeal, and some desire. And if God's love letter, which is the kiss, uh, the kiss of God upon your soul is this book. This is the greatest thing God ever gave you, is this Bible. He gave you His Son, the Lord Jesus, the living Word, and then He gave you the written Word, which is Jesus Christ in print so that you can touch and feel and hear and know the mind of that Savior who saved you. And anybody that wants to pervert this, to me, might as well be perverting my Savior. And I take umbrance with that. I take issue with that, and I will get defensive, and I will get aggressive about anybody that wants to come and attack this Bible and undermine this Bible, because it's satanic. The attack of the Bible is satanic. Somebody stands up in a pulpit and has six Bibles on the pulpit and says, I like it what it says in this one, and I like this one, and what about this one, and how about the, the bad news for modern man, and what about this guy over here and that one over here? You know what that is? That is, friend at home, that is satanic because it is the serpent that said, yea, hath God said. What did God really say? And as you sit there spinning your wheels, wondering what God said, the devil's like, <laughs> you fell right into his mire. All right, definitely not finishing this. All right, 1 Samuel 14, 24, all right? Now, here's another lousy thing Saul did. See this? Saul puts the people under an oath that keeps them from the honey. Watch this, 24. And the men of Israel, this is chapter 14, 24. And the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had adjured the people, saying, Cursed be the man that eateth any food until evening that I may be avenged on mine enemies. So none of the people tasted any food. And all they of the land came to a wood, and there was honey upon the ground. And when the people were coming to the wood, behold, the honey dropped. But no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan heard not when his father charged the people with the oath. Wherefore, he put forth the end of the rod that was in his hand and dipped it in a honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth. And watch this next phrase. And his eyes were enlightened. 
Then answered one of the people and said, Thy father straightly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man that eateth any food this day. And the people were faint. You know what Saul is? He's that proud, legalistic, Baptist Pope. That's who he is. He wants to control what people do with the Bible. He wants to control how much Bible they get. He wants to run the shots. He is, how dare you? (laughs) The honey is the word of God in this story, right? Psalm 119, 103 says, How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And what happened when Jonathan ate the honey? He was enlightened. What does Psalm 19, 8 say? It says, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, man. You taste a little honey, you know what God does? He opens your eyes about some things. And you know what God put the honey in verse 25? On the ground, man. He let it drop right down there where everybody could get it in 75% one-syllable words with a sixth-grade reading level where everybody could get it and enjoy it and get what they need and not be famished. But verse 28, Saul is keeping God's people faint. He's keeping God's people starved. He's keeping God's people famished. Why? Because he's a control freak. Like Satan is a control freak. That spirit of the age that wants to know everything you do and watch everywhere you go. That's not the Holy Spirit, by the way. That's communist China, where they got like the technocracy watching you and monitoring you and trying to control your moves, your actions, your directions. That's not the Spirit of God. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And this is not a political statement. But you know what? If the Word of God is being preached, and hey, if you want to go out one day and hand out tracts, God bless you. I'm not going to maintain that and monitor that. That's Saul. right? If you want to go and, and have a Bible study with your mom and dad over the coffee table, that praise the Lord, do it. That's Saul that would have any problem with that. Hey, we got guys preaching at the nursing home, guys preaching on the street, guys preaching at the rescue mission. Play, I'm, not, I'm not there half the time. You know what? Praise God. That's what a church should be. Feeding people, teaching people, growing them up so this launching pad can send some people out to go do something for God. But there's a lot of people out there like Saul that if they're not the one directing all the preach, there are churches, good King James churches that I can name that only the pastor can do all the teaching. There is no discipleship program. There is no men's meet. Open, read the Bible and comment together. That's blasphemous to some people. But you know what? That's Saul. That's Saul. He wants to control people like a control freak. The Word of God is not bound. You can't. Now, there is not anarchy. There's order. There's coverings. There's direction. Of course, we don't want people just going off half-cocked and making a mess of things. But you know what? Within that confine that God's given of the New Testament church, go get them, man. Go get them. Go do something with that book. Praise God. Saul, no. Saul, Saul, you're not eating unless I'm feeding you. Right? That is some twisted stuff, man. Look at verse 29. You know anybody like that? I hope so. I hope not. Then said Jonathan, My father hath troubled the lamb. See, I pray you how mine eyes have been enlightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much more, if happily, the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found. For had there not been now a much greater slaughter among the Philistines. What God's people could do with the Word of God and a good leader that just kind of loads them up and lets them go do what God wants them to do. No leader, no deacon, no pastor is the Holy Spirit in this place. You know what ministers the church? The Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit's church. That's why I love our prayer meetings on Thursday, on Tuesday nights because we have to stay in tune with the Holy Spirit. We need to do what the Holy Spirit wants. And you might have a better idea than I have. You know what? we got to work together. Yes, there's order Right? There's an order and a structure. I understand that. But you know what? We are supposed to be working together and be governed and led by the Holy Spirit of God. Not Saul. Not any, you know, not that. You know what the Bible says? We might know the things that are freely given to us of God. God says, I freely want you to know all this stuff. And do you know what word the devil took first out of the Bible? Freely. He told Adam, of the trees of the garden thou mayest freely eat. And when the devil rolled up on Eve, she just said, oh yeah, we can eat of them. She took out the word freely. 
Before anybody added to the word, something was getting taken away freely. God freely wants us to know the things that are given to us of God. Saul is not that guy. Look at chapter, verse 43. Verse 43. You want to follow this guy? You don't want to follow this guy. Verse 43. Look at 43. Now Saul bumps into Jonathan. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what thou hast done. Jonathan told him and said, I did but taste a little honey with the end of the rod that was in mine hand, and lo, I must die. And Saul answered, God, do so and more also, for thou shalt surely die, Jonathan. You idiot. You idiot. You're willing to let your son die for tasting a little honey? What a buffoon. What an absolute buffoon. All right, let's go to chapter 15. Now, chapter 15 is the last thing I want to say about Saul here. I've given him too much air time. You know what the Laodicean pastor doesn't do? He doesn't smite Amalek. He spares the flesh. He kind of keeps some of it at play. 1 Samuel 15, look at verse 3. Samuel tells Saul, Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. Can you just help me right now? Let's get some participation. How much of Amalek did Samuel want Saul to destroy? Everything. All of it. I got hand gestures. I got, you know, everything. All of us with a sixth grade education can get that vibe. And we know what happens. Saul doesn't do that. He leaves the best behind. And in verse number 13 again, lo and behold, verse number 13, Samuel shows up. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord. Oh, he sounds so pious. Blessed be thou of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Saul is celebrating victory when he's been disobedient. He's crazy. Right? He's like, look what I did. Oh, praise God, brother. Bless God, brother. He's got his nice, pious talk. And Samuel's like, what mean the bleeding of the sheep that I hear? You didn't do what I asked you to do. You know what? Satan loves the flesh. Because Satan uses the flesh. He titillates the flesh. You know what? Saul, that wicked leader, you know what? He wants to keep some of the flesh in your church services. He wants to keep some of the flesh in your life. He would never preach on sin. He would never offend you. He would never say anything that would chap your hide. He would never point out your secret sins that reside in your heart. But you know what David and the spiritual leader is supposed to do? He's supposed to aim for your heart and help smite the flesh and help you get this thing under faithful to the wounds of a friend but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful and so you got to watch this guy he's a dangerous guy and in verse number 23 watch this Saul is rejected as king because he rejected God's word no predestination no foreordained before the foundation of the world God told you to do something you didn't do it so you're out 23 for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft now if I came up to you and said hey man you want to have a seance you go, no. You want to go get a tarot card reading? You say, no. You want to like, let's drop some leaves in the oil and let's do some weeds. You say, no. But every time you're as stubborn against the word of God, you might as well just head over to Madame Blavatsky's and do an incantation. Because God says rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. If I said, hey, let's go worship that tree over there, you say, no, I wouldn't do that. But when you're stubborn to the word of God, you might as well bow down to a pagan idol and kiss its feet. Right? Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Verse number 22. If you don't have that highlighted, memorized, tattooed across your eyelids on the inside then this is the verse for you. Hath, and Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. You know what he's saying there? If you violate the principles of this book, no matter what you do that you think God wants, you're wasting your time. Obey me. Listen to me. Right? If I told my son to clean the car and he didn't clean the car, but instead he like, you know, cleaned his room. No, I really appreciate that. But I told you to do this. You didn't do what I said. Now let's go to chapter 16. Let's chain, turn the page here. All right. Introduction to David in chapter 16. Now breath of fresh air. 
David, the Lord's leader, he is God's choice, not the people's choice. Please note some of the contrast between Saul and David. Saul was the people's choice. David was God's choice. Saul was proud. Saul thought he was somebody, right? Listen to me, follow me, heap your praise upon me. You know what David was? David was humble. He didn't think he was somebody. He saw himself as a servant. And look at verse 6. There's a beautiful part here. They're picking out a new king, right, to replace Saul. And it came to pass, verse 6, when they were come, that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Eliab must have looked impressive. He must have been jacked, you know, uh, you know, biceps pushing up against his T-shirt, you know, wavy hair, nice suntan. You know, he must have looked really good, you know, 6'3", blue eyes, you know. Wait, I'm not describing anybody here. Don't look around. But, you know, he must have looked like a specimen. And Samuel didn't get it. You just got rid of the one knucklehead that was head and shoulders above the rest. And now you're going to do the same thing. You're judging after your eyes. And God says something in verse 7. This is another gold standard verse. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. You know who God chose to be his king? The smallest and the youngest of the tribe. I mean, of the, of the litter right there. The smallest and the youngest. Why? Because God's looking on the heart. Not looking on the size. You know, you say, you say oh, we got this little church. It's, God's not looking at the size of anything. He's looking at the heart. I mean, Jesus had 12 disciples, right? One of them was a devil. Turned the world upside down. He spent three and a half years on 12 men. One of them betrayed him. So get this idea out of your mind that we've got to have bigger and better. It's about the heart. God says, don't look on the height or the countenance or anything like that. I don't care about that stuff. I'm caring about the heart, man. If we can get some people on fire among the 10 or 12 of us, we turn New Jersey upside down. We turn this community upside down. We turn your world upside down. You just got to have the heart. Mark Twain, not a Christian. <laughs> but Mark Twain says something interesting. He said, it's not the size of the dog in the fight but the size of the fight in the dog. I know somebody said that, I wrote that in my Bible. That's a good thing here. God says, don't look at the big dog right there. There's that little ruddy young David. This one is going to kill the giant, right? Because he had a fight in that dog. Let's look at that, chapter 17. Chapter 17 is David and Goliath. Familiar story, but I'm not going to say a lot about it. I'm just going to touch on some stuff. Let's look at verse, let's look at chapter 16, verse 13. Can I show you this first? Before David and Goliath, see verse 13, of chapter 16. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. Please notice, David could not go to battle in chapter 17 before being anointed by the Spirit of God in chapter 16. You ain't fighting no battle with any kind of success without the Holy Spirit of God helping you. That's why we pray before Thursday night, before we pray before Sunday morning. That's why we try to beseech God, help us, we can't do this. And David had to get anointed and equipped by the Holy Spirit of God before he went out and fought a giant. Chapter 17, verse 3. Please notice some things about this battle with Goliath. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, and there was a valley between them. Goliath waits for you in a valley. He wants to engage with you in a valley. A low point in your life. A dark point in your life. That's, brethren, I'm going to tell you, that's where you're going to fight those giants. Not when you're on the mountaintop. When you come down in the valley... That's where the giant wants to engage. That's where you're going to do your fiercest spiritual warfare when you're in a valley, when you're in a low point, a dark place between the mountains. That's where the giant is ready to engage you. Look at verse number 37. This is interesting. Verse 37. So David shows up at the camp. And 37 says, he's talking to Saul now. And David said, moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear... He will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. Please notice that before David fought the big giant, David had proved God before the battle. 
in some little ways or some smaller ways. I think fighting a lion is a big deal, but it wasn't as big of a deal as fighting that giant. And let me tell you something, guys. you got to prove God in the little things before you're ready to fight him in the big things. You want an interesting cross-reference? I'm not going to flip there. But you want to write down Mark 1, verse 12 to 13? You know, before Jesus Christ began his public ministry, Mark 1, 12 to 13, before Jesus Christ began his public ministry, he was encountering wild beasts in the desert. And before the David fought the giant, he faces wild beasts. you got to face some things before you go and face the giant. Uh, look at verse 38. Watch this. <clears throat> and Saul armed David. Wow. <laughs> what a punk. Do you see this? This kid's like 17 years old. And Saul is such a coward that he lets David face the giant instead of going himself. That is just a horrible specimen of a human being right there. All right, now look at verse 46. 46. Here is a beautiful picture of the second coming of Christ. Watch this. 46. Well, here comes the conflict, all right? And, and now David is, you know, he stepped up, right? He stepped up to Goliath, and it says, This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thine, what's it say? Head from thee. And I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Please notice this beautiful picture. What's the first thing I see? Well, Jesus Christ is going to bruise the serpent's head and fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15. David says, I'm going to knock you in the head and take your head off. Where does he hit him? In the forehead. And then he cuts off his head. He wounds his head. He bruises his head. There's a picture of what Jesus is going to do at the second coming when he bruises the serpent's head, i.e. the Antichrist. That's a great picture. And then secondly, he says there in verse 46, I'm going to let the fowls of the air feast on your carcass. Have you not read Revelation 19? When all the fowls come and feast on the Antichrist and his dead armies, and they eat the flesh of the Antichrist and his dead armies, it's all pictured right there. Beautiful picture. But you know what? In a practical way, this conflict also pictures the giants in your own life. Right? We're going to face giants. There's a Christian movie made years ago, Facing the Giants. Pretty good movie. Right? We're going to all face giants. The advice that we see in David's life is the advice that we take away. Number one, you need God's anointing to slay the giant. Walk in the Spirit. You better be prayed up, read up, and fellowshiped up before you try to face anything in your life. You need to walk in the Spirit like David was anointed. Number two, you need to be faithful in the little battles to get ready for the big giants. If you, Listen. I'm preaching to the choir, I know. But if you can't get consistent with coming to church, there ain't too much more you're going to do for God. That's like jump. That's like step one of, of things you could do for God. Yes, read your Bible and pray is private. You could do that anywhere. But if you can't commit to just being in church... I don't know what other things God is ever going to commit to you. My life changed many years ago when I just said, Lord, when church is open, I'm going to do my best to be there. I remember the decision I made. I said, I, just, I guess I should be there because I need as much as that as I can. And it just will change your life. And he says, you got to fight those lions and those bears before you face a giant with any success. And number three, you need to be ready for the valleys because the valleys are where the giants are going to try to engage you taunt you, mock you, get up close and want to fight you. So when you're on the mountaintop, get as much as you can because the valleys come, that's when the giants are going to get ready to face you. And look at, look at chapter 18. This is a very, very interesting moment in the Word of God. So David kills him and everybody's going crazy. Ticker tape parade, right? Everybody takes off from school and they're all coming down. And it says, and the women answered one another, canyon of heroes, they're throwing stuff down on them. And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Hooray, hooray. But one guy wasn't cheering. 18.8. And Saul was very wroth. And the saying displeased him. And he said, I probably had his thumb in his mouth. 
they have ascribed unto David 10,000. And to me they have ascribed a thousand. But what can he have more but the kingdom? That was perfect on cue, Mike. That was perfect, right? 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 Just, he's whining. He's crying. And look at verse 9. And Saul eyed David from that day forward. The flesh has got envious eyes. Beware of envy after God gives you the victory. Beware of the brethren looking at you different when you give that testimony. Beware of the brethren looking at you sideways when God gives you some great blessing. That envy man is as palpable as the table you're sitting on. It's real. You better watch your heart when somebody else gets blessed. You better watch the way they look at you when you're blessed because they eye you. The flesh eyes the spiritual mind. How come he got that? How come God did that for him? Didn't do that for me. What has he got that I don't got? You know what that is? Flesh. That's Saul. Right? And it's interesting, in David's life, all the problems happened after Goliath died. (laughs) And sometimes, after a great victory, come your biggest problems. The flesh wants to retaliate, like Saul does. Now jump to chapter 19. Look at verse 1. Let's talk about David and Jonathan. Now, the perverts out there want to make David and Jonathan's relationship something more than it was. They want to make it sick and twisted because it's a manifestation of their own sick and twisted heart. This was just a guy that loved another guy like he loved a brother beyond the love of women. Right? Just not that he loved them that way, but that he loved them more than the romantic, sensual love that is fleeting. This was a camaraderie and a fellowship that was based around God, soldiers in battle, that was something beyond even the love of a woman. It was something they would die for each other. And that's what this love was. And you see chapter 19, verse 1, Saul spake to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. Saul wants to kill David. Remember when Jesus was hated without a cause? <laughs> right there, right? David, why do you want to kill me? I took care of your enemy. You want to kill me now? He's psycho. Saul's a maniac. Saul wants to kill David. Why? Because the flesh lusteth against the spirit. Right? That's a picture there. The flesh lusteth against the spirit. But you see what God gives David in verse 2? God gives David a good friend who gives him some good advice. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, seeketh to kill thee. Now therefore, I pray thee, take heed to thyself until the morning, and abide in a secret place, and hide thyself. This is some good advice his friend gives him, some good counsel. See the three things? It's a good devotional message here, if you want to pull it out. Three things he tells him to do. Number one, take heed to thyself. Watch yourself, David. Take care of yourself, David. That's number one. Number two, he says, until the morning. Wait for the morning, David, because the flesh can't get you in the morning. When the morning comes, Saul's not going to be able to find you. And brother, when the morning comes, the flesh is going to get put down. You get a brand new body, and this thing ain't going to bother you and haunt you and chase you anymore. And number three, he says, hey, abide in a secret place. Walk with God, man. Stay close to God. You'll be okay. Go to, hold your place. Go to Psalm 91. That's some good advice from a good friend. If you want to be a friend to somebody, that's a good model for you. Tell them those things. Psalm 91. You ever study that secret place? It's a good study in your Bible. Psalm 91 verse, we read this at the prayer meeting tonight. Great chapter, Psalm 91. Let's look at verse uh, 2. Verse 1, I'm sorry. He that dwelleth, Psalm 91.1. Beautiful, beautiful psalm. Psalm 91.1. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Woo! You know what he's saying there? You stay close to God and that sun is not going to beat down on you. You're going to be okay. You'll be protected. Of course, that's doctrinally a picture of Israel. They're hidden in a secret place and protected from the tribulation. But you and I, as we go through our personal tribulation, you know what you got to get? Get as close to God as you can. You get close to God, get your arms wrapped around Him. You know what? You'll be okay. The storm's not going to overtake you if you're close to the one who can control the waves. Go to Proverbs 17, 17. Proverbs 17, 17. Proverbs 17, 17. Proverbs 17, 17. 
Some good practical verses, man. You want to be a friend to somebody? You want to be a friend to a guy like John Koch? And maybe you've never seen his face, but you could be a friend to him. Friend to your brothers and sisters in Christ. A real friend. Jonathan is a great model. Because a friend loveth at all times. And a brother is born for adversity. You need a Jonathan if you're going to serve God. You need a brother or a friend who's going to quietly have your back. You know what people said to me when uh, I became a pastor? Oh, you're not going to have any friends anymore, Pat. Pastor's got no friends. I don't think that's true. I got some good friends. Many of them are in this room. I got some good friends that quietly just have my back and try to give me good advice, give me good counsel, pray for me. You know, you need a good friend. You need a brother or sister in Christ that'll have your back and say things like that. Look at the model. Just tell them, hey, just take care of yourself, brother. Jesus is coming. Stay close to the Lord. Walk with God, man. It's going to be okay. What great simple advice Jonathan gave David that we could give each other. Now let's go to chapters 23. Let's go to 1 Samuel. We're almost done here. I'm hurrying along. We are going to finish this. I front-loaded the message. I blasted it out. And now I'm just coming down the mountain now. 23. 20, now 23 to 31, very sad. Saul starts turning to witchcraft. Now, go to 1 Samuel 23, watch this contrast. 1 Samuel 23, verse 10. Here is David. David is the spiritual man. 23, 10. Then said David, O Lord God of Israel, thy servant has certainly heard that Saul seeketh to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Keilah deliver me up into his hand? Will Saul come down as thy servant hath heard? O Lord God of Israel, I beseech thee, tell thy servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. You want to notice something about the spiritual man? The spiritual man gets answers from the Lord. Right? The spiritual man, the one that's walking with God, God's choice for a king, gets answers from God. You getting any answers to your prayers? It could be no. It could be yes, it could be wait, but God's always going to answer. He might say no, he might say yes, he might say just back the truck up, son, just wait a little bit, I got the payload coming soon, just wait. But go to chapter 28 and see the contrast. And if you notice, David would always touch in with God. Sometimes God would say go, sometimes he would say wait for the sound in the tops of the mulberry trees. When you hear that, then you go. All right, 28. Here's Saul. Here's the contrast. Verse 6, 1 Samuel 28, 6. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not. Neither by dreams, nor by Urim, nor by prophets. The natural man gets no answers from the Lord. And that right there, to me, is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. The total rejection of Saul is epitomized by the fact that God has turned a deaf ear to his inquiries. He had promised him the kingdom. He had told them, I'd be with you. He tried, gave him another heart earlier on when he first took the kingdom. And now God is, has nothing to do with him. I, that makes me tremble. I tremble of the fact that I could get so far from God that I could reach out to him and he's like, I don't even want to hear from you right now horrible thought, but it should sober us to walk with God. And you know what happens in 28 is when he sees the witch at Endor. You know why he's going to see the witch? Because he can't get through to God. So he's going to go see the, the, the card reader or the whatever, the, the, the medium, whoever it is, the one on the TV that you send in the 2995 and you touch the screen. That's, I'm dating myself, but you know, you get the point of contact, they'll mail it to you, you blow your nose with it and you wave it around and, and the spirits drip on your head, right? That's, that's, that's what you get. And this guy is desperate because the further you get from God, the more desperate you become. This guy is fiending for something and God's not answering him. So he's like, I'll take an answer from any spirit. And he's desperate. Now go to, uh, go to Jeremiah chapter 3. I want to point out now in chapters 30 to 31, the passing of power. Actually, go to 2 Samuel chapter 3. I'm sorry. 2 Samuel chapter 3. By the end of this book, the power is going to be passed or being passed from Saul to David, from the flesh to the spirit. The Bible calls it a translation. See 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 10. Abner is speaking. He says, 
that God is going to translate the kingdom from the house of Saul and to set up the throne of David over Israel. Please notice, God's translation always gets better. There's three translations in the Bible. There's the translation from the kingdom of Saul to the kingdom of David, that's 2 Samuel. There's a translation from the kingdom of Satan, the power of darkness, to the kingdom of the dear son, Colossians chapter 1. And there's the translation of Enoch in Hebrews chapter 11, from earth to heaven. In each one of them, something gets better. Saul to David, better. Devil to Christ, much better. Earth to heaven, super better. They're all better. Because when God does the translating, something always gets better. I've got a Bible that God was involved in the translating. And I know things get lost in the translation down here, but when God is involved in the translating, it gets better than the Greek, better than the Hebrew. Yeah, I said it. Because when God translates, it gets better. God improved it, clarified it, made it better. Now go to Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah chapter 3. Look at this, Jeremiah 3. Now, I got this point, and I'll just give you one big idea, and we'll be done. Jeremiah 3, look at verse 12. All right? <clears throat> Jeremiah three twelve. Israel's in apostasy. And God's pleading with them. And he says, Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return thou backsliding Israel, saith the Lord, and I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you, for I am merciful, saying the Lord, and I will not keep anger forever. What a God. Only acknowledge thine iniquity that thou hast transgressed. What, what grace, man. What, what grace God has. He should have thrown me into hell. And he says, Can you just admit you got something going on here? Can you just acknowledge your mistake? that thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God and hast scattered thy ways to the strangers unto every green tree, and ye have not obeyed my voice, saith the Lord. Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you, I love you, and I will take you one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And when they turn, and when they make it right, the Bible says, and I will give you pastors according to mine heart which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. You read other parts of Jeremiah and Ezekiel? When they were in apostasy, they had horrible leaders, horrible pastors. You get up to the time of Christ, the pastors of Israel were not feeding the flock. They were terrible. He says, if you would turn back to me, I'm going to give you pastors after my heart. Pastors like David, shepherds like David, a man after what? God's own heart, right? When Israel's heart is after the Lord, he says, I'm going to give you pastors after my heart. You follow that principle? Now watch this. Saul was the people's choice, right? He was a man after the people's rebellious heart. He was their king because that's who they wanted. They wanted somebody like him. An ungodly leadership in the church house or the White House. Ungodly leadership is a reflection of the people's wicked hearts and the people's wicked desires and the people's carnality. I'll show you in Hosea chapter 4. Ah, you're not going to like this one because we like to rail on the guys over there. But the guys over there are only in power because deep down that's what the people want. It's a reflection of their wickedness as a whole. I don't mean you specifically, but uh, a group corporately. Hosea chapter 4, watch this. Watch this, Hosea chapter 4. Uh, Hosea 4, if you find it first, you won nothing. Hosea 4 verse 6, the Bible says this. Is God talking to Israel in adultery and spiritual apostasy and he says my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because thou hast rejected knowledge I will also reject thee that thou shalt be no priest to me seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God I will also forget thy children as they were increased so they sinned against me therefore will I change their glory into shame they eat up the sin of my people and they set their heart in their iniquity and there shall be like people like priest. The way you are, that's the way your leader's going to be. 
and I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their doings. God's judgment on Israel in apostasy would be wicked leaders like their wicked hearts. Like people, like priests. You want to live like that? You're going to get leaders like that. Horace Greeley was a United States representative many years ago when America was still a much better place than it is now. I still think it's a great place. But he said this, It is impossible to enslave mentally or socially a Bible-reading people. The principles of the Bible are the groundwork of human freedom. You understand, things are lousier at the top because everything at the bottom is lousy. Our hearts are far from the truth. Our hearts are not thirsting after righteousness. Think about the tribulation. What's going to happen in the tribulation? When the whole world lies in wickedness, what ruler does the world get? The Antichrist himself. When the whole world lieth in wickedness, God says, you're going to get His Majesty the devil leading over you because that's who you want. The people's choice, Laodicea. What does that mean? I'm going to say this, and I don't like it anymore. I saw this today, and I was like, oh, I don't like this. Because I like to rail and watch my, you know, guys rail who are on my side. But the next time you get upset about who's in the White House, remember who's in the nation. Because the nation, the White House, whoever's in the lead, is a reflection of the spiritual condition of the country. That's what God said about Israel, and it's true. It's true. 1 Samuel chapter 31, we'll finish over there. Let's go back to 1 Samuel, finish. I know it's not popular. I want to, you know... Turn on my tucker and rail too, right? And, uh, you know, there's some truth in that. I'm not saying all those guys are bad or anything. But before you get frustrated and point the finger, remember, when you point the finger there, three fingers are pointing back at you. And you know what? All the people storing powdered food and ammunition, you could never have an American Revolution again. We're not righteous people anymore. We're not a moral nation anymore. Think about what kind of hellhole we'd bring into being. We're not a righteous nation anymore. I think it was it Adams who said, he's, one of them said, I'm going to mess up, that democracy, the republic, wouldn't work with an unrighteous nation. It won't work if people are not righteous and guided by something higher than themselves like the Bible. And, uh, that was in uh, Mayor Adams, right? No, 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 no. <laughs> Certainly not. He's only proven my other point. All right, First Samuel 31, 4. No, no, no. First Samuel 31, 4. So where does Saul end up? Saul ends up one of the seven suicides in the Bible. Verse 4, 31, 4. Then said Saul unto his armor-bearer, Draw thy sword, and thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through, and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell upon it. One of seven suicides in the Bible. Abimelech in Judges 9. Samson in Judges 16. Saul in 1 Samuel 31. Saul's armor-bearer, 1 Samuel 31. Ahithophel, 2 Samuel 17, Zimri, 1 Kings 16, and Judas, Matthew 27. Seven suicides in the Bible. Saul's one of them. And you know what happens right in the next verse? And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell likewise upon his sword and died with him. Saul takes his armor bearer down with him. Because when a leader goes down, he affects the people under him. And that's the sad end of Saul. So let's go back to chapter 8. And I just got two big ideas, and they will be quick, very quick. First big idea that I want you to take home from the book of Samuel. The place for and the power of prayer in all experiences. The whole book of Samuel could be seen as a book of prayer. In fact, Samuel's name means asked of God. And if you're going to stand like Samuel in an ungodly world like this man does in this Bible, you've got to be a man of prayer like Samuel was. In all circumstances, in all experiences, there's never a time when it's not right to pray. And let me just throw a few out at you. Chapter 1, Samuel was given by God as an answer to prayer. He starts because of prayer. Chapter 7, victory is given to Israel because of Samuel's prayer. Chapter 8, verse 5 and 6. I'm not going uh, to read it. I was going to read it, but I'm going to skip it. 5 and 6. 
Samuel is seeking God in sorrow through prayer. You could pray to God when your heart is breaking, like Samuel was breaking for his nation. Sorrow is a time to pray. Look at chapter 9, verse 15. Chapter 9, 15. Now the Lord, look, 9, 15. Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear. Please notice that a praying man learns secrets from God. A praying man gets truth from God. That's a reason to pray. Chapter 12, verse 23, Samuel actually says, not praying is tantamount to sin. God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. And in chapter 28, verse 6, we just saw it. Rejection from God is the Lord turning a deaf ear to your prayer. So a big takeaway from the book of Samuel is the place and the power of prayer in all experiences of life. Sorrow, victory, wisdom, prayer is Samuel's life from start to finish. And the second big takeaway is this. It's the theme of the book I want to reiterate. Your success or your failure is based on your obedience. Hath the Lord as great delight in birth offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. To obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. 1 Samuel 15, 22. That's a big... Sam, Israel rose and fell based on their obedience. And you are going to rise and fall as a Christian based on your obedience to that book. Amen. And that's the book of 1 Samuel.